On this podcast, you're going to be hearing some pretty terrible subject matter. We know what you're thinking. That's why we're here. Keep going. However, topics covered may cause emotional or physiological distress to listeners and discretion is advised. Sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Hi, guys, and welcome to That's Terrible. Keep going. I'm Casey Kay. And I'm Amy Kay. And you're also Greggy. And you're also Greg. And you're darling. And you're doll. And you're, well, I call you everything under the sun. And you're sometimes a bitch. <laughs> if you can't tell by now, we're two sisters that are interested in all things terrible. And we're coming at you with a podcast, just like everyone else in the world, about all things terrible. But more specifically, covering anything and everything from true crime. To cults. Natural disasters, famine. What else you got, Greg? Maybe some heists or historical mysteries. But you get the picture. And we hope you're really into it and we hope you enjoy listening and you hope you like the lighthearted nature from both of us. A bit about me. I'm a 30-year-old, also an analyst. Pushing 50. <laughs> and an analyst at a neuroanalytics company. And how about you, Greggy? I'm in my later 20s and I work with kids. So hopefully you get a bit of a mix with our backgrounds and our personalities and hope they come to life and that you choose me to be your favourite. But we'll try not to waffle on too much. How about we jump in today's case? Sounds good. Enjoy it, you sickos. <laughs> so the way this works is Greggy has no idea what case I'm actually doing today. So this is going to be the first time live on air or recorded air that I actually tell you what it is. You ready, Greg? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Today, we are covering the 1976 Chowchilla bus kidnapping. Have you heard of it? No. Where is that? (laughs) I'll tell you in the case, Joel. Now we're setting the scene. So depending on how you classify abductions, this was one of the largest abductions for ransom schemes in US history at the time. And it absolutely transfixed the nation. It was globally like a huge deal Um, and our story begins like I said in 1976 and it was July the 15th in Chowchilla, California. Where was it you say? That's kind of southeast of San Fran between Modesto and Fresno so in that sort of region and at the time and, and very much still is a quiet farming community and it was in this moment in time that 26 children aged between five and four so 26 of these people and seven, so this was 19 girls and seven boys were on a Dairyland Elementary school bus driven by driver Ed Ray, and he was 55 years old at the time. I'm thinking like yellow school bus Simpsons Exactly. Style. So if we're painting a picture with your ears, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly right, Grego. So that's that big boxy school bus. That's what they were loaded in. Was it the driver? So. <laughs> Wait, you'll have to wait. I don't want to ruin it too early. So Ed Ray was our driver at fifty-five. I'm on to you. And then on the way, and they were on the way home from summer school. So they were actually on their way back from a swimming outing at the fairgrounds. Can you imagine? Just picture it, like the smell, just like the water, and you're in your bathers, you're in your like sandals, you're in your short shorts, like five to fourteen years old. Now we head into the kidnapping. It was around about four p.m. on a country road. Three masked men with guns hijacked the bus. A white van suddenly pulled up in front of the school bus and, it, and the school bus came to a stop in the middle of the road. Then two men boarded the bus wearing pantyhose over their head, carrying sawn-off shotguns. One of them took over the wheel while the other held Ray at gunpoint. 
So Ray was actually subdued um, at gunpoint. Sorry, no, no, Ray. Apologize, thick and fast, doll. Thick and fast. <laughs> no, I, I, look, we laugh and we make fun only because this is uncomfortable, right? Like we don't want, we don't like this, and humor mm-hmm. just gets us through. But the third man um, actually followed the bus from behind the van, and that barricaded the roads. So they were boxed in, um, essentially. So there was two cars, one at the front, one That's at the it. back. That's of the right, bus. and. Two men with the Shotties. stockings on their head were at the front and there was still yeah. one at the back. And you back. know what that does? Like painting a mental picture for our listeners, the pantyhose like rubs on the face and try and describe what I'm trying to do, Greggy. You sort of look like a foreskin. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we have a very interesting relationship. But essentially um, I'm squishing my face to make it sort of like a fabric that's pulling my face down. The face looks terrifying. So imagine the children looking at these faces. But it was later described that where their eyes were, and this is a quote, it almost looked hollow. It was like looking at death. So that was what it was described later on. So what the kids said. Yeah. So that actually was six-year-old victim Larry Park at the time. So after a short distance, the kidnappers then drove the bus into a dry riverbed and hid it in a tree bush. From there, the completely traumatized children and Ray, the driver, were shepherded from the bus into two vans. The hijackers actually forced them to jump from the bigger bus into these vans so they wouldn't leave little tiny footprints and tracks. So that's the two vans that they had, the one at the front and the yes, one at the back. Yes, okay. that's right. So about these transport vans, so from the bus to these vans, the kidnappers had actually pre-constructed these backs of the vans to be nightmarish hell. So when you looked at these photos, and, and they certainly share this online and perhaps we'll post it on our socials so they get a bit of an idea, um, they painted all the windows black and installed wood panelling so no one could be seen in or out or being heard or anything like that. And, and again, looking at these vans, it's like classic kind of 70s style moving van and super creepy. Um, and with these large wooden boards, it's kind of like that old style fake wood almost, kind of like what was in Omar's um, caravan. If you can, mm. so, so trying to picture that for the guys at home, like that's really, really creepy. But essentially when you close those doors, it's black as hell. Um, and there was no air ventilation in these vans, food, or obviously no toilets in the van. Just how, awful. How big are we talking in these vans? Looking at those photos, because we, we moved to a later area, they didn't actually share too much but the outside of the that. I'm thinking almost like as big as like a Toyota Hiace, but yeah. remember it was two vans. So we had these groups of little children separated into these two vans. So Jennifer Brown Hyde, who was nine at the time of the kidnapping, recalls what it felt like inside the van and, quote, I felt like I was an animal going to the slaughterhouse. This is a nine-year-old girl. So the kidnappers drove around for nearly 12 hours. These children and their bus driver were in the pitch black vans. And this was a summer, remember? Summer. You couldn't catch me dead in my little hatchback with aircon in summer for too long. This is like 1976. They probably wouldn't have aircon. No, definitely not. No windows. They've just been swimming, they're thirsty. I know, little, little kids. So um, no air in the sweltering summer for 12 hours again. So at various points of this part of the kidnapping, the children were showing signs of distress, obviously. Um, I don't want to talk about it too much because it's this part of the case that I think caused me to remember it the most is just the anguish of the children and which is why it sort of stayed for me as a memory for so long but at the start obviously they were screaming like at the top of their lungs um, really early into the ordeal but then eventually they begin to whimper and sob separately at different times and as some kids would start others would follow so and it was kind of like a trigger thing you know they felt scared to cry or scared to stop and they want to act tough or then someone would sob and they would all kind of let get going sort of let loose I know so and obviously because of the stress the 
little ones um, would start to vomit uh, and they'll try to hold their urine and other sort of waste um, at bay. But obviously after 12 hours it became impossible. Oh, you know what nerves can do to my belly. <laughs> Not only really nerves, Joel, just after an hour into eating. <laughs> oh, we're sharing too much. Too much <laughs> listeners. Just wipe that, edit that out. Moving, Moving on. on. So, And many noted that the older children, so this after the fact, many tried their best to comfort the younger ones and entertain them. So it was reported actually from multiple of the children that they would try to sing at different points to take their minds off what was happening. The victims would recall um, in particular, you know that song, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, like clap, clap. Mm. But when they sung that, so the older kids sung that, none of the younger ones sung along. So they kind of adjusted the song, and this is fairly sad, but if you're sad and you know it, clap your hand. Yeah, and the oh. little ones clapped along. So I just think even in this time where you have no idea where you're going, what you're doing you've got this resilience and this strength of the older children trying to comfort liberal people i think it's in when you hear about all these cases like anything whether it's a podcast you're listening to a doctor that you're watching sometimes in these moments it's the humanity that surprises you the most not the depravity and not the scariness of the perpetrators but it's the humanity and innocence in the victims Mm. or survivors in any case anyway Now we talk about their next stop. Okay, so 12 hours again, guys, finally the van stopped. The kidnappers had taken them to a rock quarry about 100 miles away. Wait, what's a rock quarry? Um, If you can picture where they basically dig and drill for different rocks and substances or or earth movements. So if you picture, I don't know, I'm trying to think and rack my brain of a visual, but you know, like where you see those big moving cranes and it's a big sort of basin of rock and dirt, mm. um, kind of like a mine, if you will, like yeah. a mine for that. Um, so, again, so the kidnaps had taken them to a rock quarry 100 miles or done the math for you, Joel. It's 160 kilometres in our measurement, um, but away from Chowchilla in Livermore, California. So is that in the middle of nowhere? Or? Kind of in relation to Chowchilla. It was already quiet, but this was a little bit more out. And naturally, like rock quarries, mines and stuff like that, if you're mining from substances, there's a little bit away from the town. And then close to those towns, there's smaller living places literally for the families of the workers and the workers. But mm. it was a little bit further away from the, what's already a quiet farming town. So actually, but looking at the maps, and when, you, when I looked it up on the map, that's only not that far. So they shouldn't have been driving for 12 hours to actually get to that point. So if they were, say, driving at minimum, like 60 k's an hour, so 37 miles per hour, if you want, um, directly to the quarry, then they should have got there in around two to three hours. So it was believed that they were driving around. They These three men had worked out that to to drive around, if they were ever caught or captured, it would have disoriented the victims. Mm. And to me, that's that's premeditation of torture as well. You cannot do this to people and not think, oh, driving around in the van for 12 hours without food, without somewhere to go to the bathroom, that's not torture. So this is just all kinds of hell. So, again, it's been nearly 12 hours at this point, which makes it very early hours of the following morning. So these children haven't eaten, they're hungry, they're tired, cranky. They've they've still got their wetsuits and bathing suits on and stuff like that. And scared. Yeah, and scared. So it's very early hours of the morning when they arrive at this quarry. Bus driver Ed Ray and the children were taken out of the vans one by one and sent down into a hole in the ground. So what was in the hole in the ground? This hole with a ladder led inside to an old trailer trunk, like a actually more of a truck trailer, um, and buried 12 feet underground. 
How does something like that even get there? Yeah, oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. But once all 27 members, so 26 kids and Ed Ray, were, oh, the group were inside, the kidnappers put a heavy piece of metal and a two 100-pound or 25-kilogram industrial batteries on top of the entry. So they're put in this hole, which is in this massive truck um, or trailer tr- like kind of truck, and they put these huge big batteries, 45 kilos each, onto the top of that lid of that thing. Um, just as like a weight? Yeah, just to hold them down to keep them in the place. Then they then filled that hole that they went in on with dirt, and then these guys just left the scene. What? Yeah. So, yeah. It's a deal. I know. So reading some articles, most of them just describe the trailer as an in-time moving van, and it was an 8-foot by 16-foot space. So that's 2.4 metres by 4.8 metres. That's tiny. So this mm. bedroom, so my, this or the pod room, is about is three meters wide, mm. but theirs is two point four. So it's so narrow. And how many kids were there again? So there's twenty six. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a like a little one bigger than a class size. Yeah, when mm. you think about it, all in this one space. But let me quickly try to describe the trailer to you. It almost looks like the a skinny freight container that you can see on like the ports or the docks, but with wheel wells. And in these wheel wells, the kidnappers made toilets. And that's how the articles describe them. But they are literally like a hole at the top of some plywood. And they made like tea saucer hole, which you could use at the end of the wheel wells. It's disgusting. Tea saucer hole, so tiny. Tiny. Like obviously just like a, a ringlet. Like I'm trying to make a size with my hand. I'm making yes. a cup size with my hands here, guys. But just awful. So no bidet. No. <laughs> Spare me a dollar. But these toilets were so terrible and just awful and no plumbing, anything like that. And so you can imagine even even though it's buried underground, it was still hot and there's no air ventilation or circulation going into that. So even if it's a little bit cooler being 12 metres below ground, it's no Cooper PD where mm. they bury these cities underground, let me tell you that. So even where do they, how do they even get oxygen? So one of the articles stated that there was two ventilation pipes going in and it's really like that kind of those tubes that look like they're covered in alfoil going into the van and also with one of those small little circulating vans at the top. So had someone previously built that as like a little home? Oh, you are reading my mind or reading my little research paper. We'll go into the preparation that led into that, but absolutely. So Hermit Crab Man or something. Yeah, well, let's just find out. So 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 the, again, the ventilation pipes were designed to go into there, but as it was covered again, the holes were covered up, essentially what these three kidnappers or these three men didn't know is that they put the ventilation pipes in there, but then they covered it and buried the truck with sand and dirt and everything. So it collapsed those ventilation things and it was a very weak working fan. All those little fans you see on top of motorhomes, you know, they're, they're mm. at the top. I don't think they actually make noises, um, but you can get that visual. So that fresh air couldn't get rid of any odours and even then the kids and the bus driver could know that there was a sense of we're going to eventually run out of air. So pretty soon into that, obviously they're in extreme discomfort, but they know things are pretty dire. They're, again, they were buried under two feet of ground. So I was thinking of like how deep that is. That's two six-foot-tall people head to toe, head to toe underground. So, mm. you know, think of that, two stacked up to up, up, so mental picture. What's, what's a celeb that would be about six foot? Maybe two like Ryan Gosling's. Oh, it might be a six-two. Anyway, <laughs> besides the point, also inside the, the buried trailer, they had containers filled with water for them to drink. These containers, kind of like those big ones that you see on the back of four-wheel drives, you know, those, they're around 25 to 30 litre containers with the spout at the end. Yeah, so they wanted them alive. Yeah. But... This is a weird flex. It's so weird. Keep going. 
<laughs> very on brand, doll. Very on brand. Bonus for you if we ever start making money, Tom. Anyway, also, this is what stood out to me as a pretty big trigger as well. The kidnappers also put in there boxes of cereal, peanut butter, and loaves of bread. Ooh. So they've planned everything else, and then someone's like, oh, okay, dolls, I'll go off and do the grocery run. If you were Sherlock Holmes right now, and this is the only information you had, what would be the profile of the kidnappers? They sound like normal blokes. Yeah, like just average, probably like, just just maybe guys, younger guys, just being like, oh, we'll feed the kids cereal, peanut butter and loaves of bread. Yeah, and they even forgot the Milo cereal. <laughs> Milo Crunch. Mm. I love it when it makes the milk turn all chocolatey. Mm. Sponsor us, Milo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at you trying to get a little time. <laughs> Spare me a dollar. Anyway, so, I, but that really struck me as strange and it's starting to pro. They're planning this degree of a crime and then other parts of the the crime or the details on how they're going to feed them and keep them alive is just so obscure. So it's poorly planned to keep them alive. Like they've crushed the ventilation. So what's what's the end game? Yeah, no, we'll get there. So also from the pictures of the scene or the trailer, there's assorted grubby blankets and single mattresses. Um, but by no means this does not look comfortable or an environment enabling sleep. These were just shoddy mattresses sort of stacked up around the two 2.4 meter wide thing. How many mattresses are you going to get for 26 kids and one adult in in the one truck? It's just obscene, yeah. and it's, it's grubby as well. Also, it's pitch black in there. There's no light in there, so they're feeling around trying to find themselves. Much like in the big black vans when they were getting transported to the quarry, the children tried to stay calm and help each other, but the minutes then ticked by into hours, freaking hours. And now, after being in the hole for almost 12 hours. Conditions really started to deteriorate. Those fans stopped actually working entirely and the roof started to cave in. Is there nothing more terrifying than the sounds of metal buckling? The claustrophobia, and we should have probably put a trigger warning in there, but those are all these cues that start to absolutely scare the shit out of you and these little kids. So they're just going off the oxygen that was in there and then that's it, which is dire straits. So And their food was running out as well. So a quote from, again, Jennifer Brown Hyde, who was nine at the time, it was just a desperate situation, we thought. And we remembered Ray and Marshall, who was another boy who was, I think he was the oldest boy, so 14 years old. And they said, if we're going to die, we're going to die trying to get out of here. And now we can talk about our goddamn heroes. And this is where where it gets really exciting. So they're already exhausted. It's been 24 hours where they've been kidnapped. They have no idea where they are. And they they have something inside of them that says we're going to get out. So the kids led by Ed Ray and, again, that older boy, so his name's Michael Marshall, 14 years old, started to act quickly. They stacked all those mattresses up to the top and they took turns wedging like a piece of wood from inside into the heavy manhole from where they came from. But they could feel that they they didn't they didn't have a visual that there was a huge forty two forty five kilo batteries on top. Mm. So they had no idea that they were pushing against. But they went hell for leather trying to go at it, absolutely wedge it out. Once they were able to move that, so they kept wedging and they took it in turns. He would break and keep going, and the kids were trying to egg him on and like keep. Ed. Uh, no, sorry, and Ed. Ed um, yeah. They they tried to keep keep going, keep going, keep going, and apparently it's very on brand because he kept going. He just kept. It was terrible, and he kept going. And <laughs> he kept like pushing and pushing at this hole. And then they realized they, they'd sort of moved the batteries off to the side, but then the dot dirt coming in. But then one of the young survivors actually said this um, of Marshall's determination at the moment. He said he dug until he was exhausted. 
Marshall's the other 14-year-old. That's it. Yeah. Our bloody hero, our saint, our survivor, everything. He's. I just can't believe it. I, even just as someone 30 trying to do that and champion on, you'd almost give up. But mm. Mm. anyway, and so Larry Park, the, one of the younger survivors, says, he dug until one of the youngest. Sorry, the young. I think he was six or nine. He dug until he was exhausted, and then he kept on digging. There was no quitting in. He just literally kept going. So as I said, the sandy earth was moving and shifting into the trailer at this point, and that would have been terrifying. Imagine thinking you're moving something only to then drown in sand. And it's thinking how much more dirt is going to come oh, in, and you just have no idea. You have no idea. So after this was a grueling process over hours. But finally, Marshall, our hero, dug himself to the top, like slowly, slowly get away. And this was 16 hours after they had buried alive at this point. And finally, and this was in the hours of the next day, a ray of light streamed in through the door <gasps> and into the dark truck. Uh-huh. I know. So it probably took them, if they started about after 12 hours, it probably took them four hours to even get that far, just the digging. Your math holds out Greg because that's exactly mm. what happened and their little bodies were trying to move this and get this into this light and remember they were buried in two Ryan Goslings of sand so they yeah. had to crawl up that godly body twice <laughs> to get through oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite envious <laughs> so Marshall uh, Marshall or Michael Marshall curiously stuck in Marshall 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 <laughs> Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> Marshall Mathers, M&M doll. <laughs> you got me. But he, he got curiously peeked his head out of the dirt because at this point they don't know if their kidnappers are up there. You've yeah. no idea where they're gone. It's terrifying. But they, he curiously popped his head up to see if the abductors were, weren't there and then he and Ray helped all the 25 other children slowly out of the truck. Then Ed Ray, they were sort of still cautiously hesitating around this quarry because imagine being literally plucked out put in a quarry you've no idea where you are so they eventually walked towards the sort of area where there was lights and stuff like that and were greeted by stunned workers because of course at this point you've got 26 kids with parents at home that their kids didn't make it home from that summer trip pass it all over the news exactly and it's daytime now too exactly the morning after and these um so stunned workers already heard this whether it's on the wireless perhaps, um, or on TV if you're that way inclined. Um, but they, they immediately call the police. So soon the police arrive, photos were taken of each child as evidence, and immediately they began to dig for clues um, at the scene of the crime. Sorry, I had to say it. Very punny. Let, let me let me indulge. Police returned the children now. So police took school, the school bus driver, Ed Ray, and the children to the closest place they could hold them in, and that was Santa Rita Rehabilitation Centre at the local jail. And here it's when, and they've got some incredible photos. We'll try and share some on Insta, TTKG podcast and Instagram or on Instagram. I'm so social media. Look at me. <laughs> but the children were given apples and soda and examined by doctors. Ed Ray and the children were also interviewed by police. And you should see the photos. This is this is kind of a heartwarming part of it. It's these poor kid children in white inmates' uniforms, like extra large. Like don't make the inmate uniforms for like little five-year-olds. And they were given like little bottles and they looked so exhausted and a bit grubby too and they're sleepy and grumpy. And obviously the flash of the photography as well startles them. But 
they're not, they don't look happy, sad. They just look extremely kind of ambivalent when they're staring, holding as many snacks as they can carry. You and your big words, ambivalent. <laughs> it's more so that they didn't look happy, sad. They didn't look angry that their photo was taken. It's almost like not a deer in headlights that they were shocked. It was just, oh, you're taking my photo. There is no happiness. There's no sadness. And they're just holding their treats. But what I found really gorgeous is small little cute children and they've grabbed two apples or two juice boxes because they're so thirsty or hungry or they're just so glad to get food again. They're like, oh, I'll grab this. This is mine. And, and they're sitting at these kind of makeshift desks, almost like a, a classroom really when they're sitting on these desks just waiting to go, okay, what's happening next? But all the children waited patiently, but they just wanted to go home for their families. So approximately four hours after escaping, the children boarded another bus <laughs> To take, <laughs> did they think they had trauma triggers back then? Going, oh. oh, let's let's just take them right back on the journey onto a bus again. But obviously, they had to get them back to Chowchilla somehow. So, on the photos of the children getting onto the Greyhound bus, you thought you'd love that. Mm, yes, I do have two Greyhounds at home. Guys, we're a big, big fan of Adopt Don't Shop here at the podcast. Big supporters of adopting local rescues if you can. So the Greyhound bus, and you can see dishevelled Ed Ray also still in the mode of helping these children. Like he, he's very much a victim in this case as well. But, you know, you see the experts trying to help him on the bus, but he's still trying to help these kids in the mode of like, I'm with you guys. It's, it's gorgeous. I feel bad thinking that he was the bad guy. You should tell. I wanted to let you step in it because that's what all <laughs> the sisters do. Carry on. Carry on. Keep on. Keep on going. Well, that's not the name of the podcast. Scratch that. <laughs> um, it's But it's incredible um, what a shared experience in trauma can do to facilitating that bond, like immediately. At this point, the parents and families of the returning children, school children waited anxiously for the arrival of their children at Chowchilla Police Station on July 17th now. Back to the investigation. So investigators unearthed the trailer that had been the children's underground tomb, hoping that they would find clues that would lead them back to the kidnappers. And around about this time, the media start to rock up. And the story unfolding was covering all around the world. So from that point on, so after getting the physical evidence from and taking the photos of the trailer itself, investigators interviewed those working at the quarry and discovered that the security guards had seen three men digging in the quarry months before the kidnapping. There's our guys. Yeah, and that's yeah. like what you said. They must have been pre-prepared. So it wasn't some like goblin living in this underground tomb. This was specifically prepared for the kidnapping. So in fact, Later, they learned that it had been buried in the quarry in November 1975. So the kidnapping, July 76, so so a little while. So like eight months. Oh, the maths on you guys, sharp as a tack. So this leads them to believe that, on, that only someone with limited access to the quarry would have been able to bury the truck. So what are you thinking, like worker? <sighs> Where were you in Chowchilla, 1976? <laughs> you weren't born, but... You could have been a big help, but spot on. So the investigators then lead them to believe exactly what you said, that it has to be someone that either lives or knows the quarry. So investigators first actually start to execute a search warrant on the 100-acre estate of the quarry owner, Frederick Nickerson Woods. <laughs> but in- interesting, Fred Woods the fourth, the 24-year-old son, was actually missing. So not the quarry owner. Oh, no. So they're both called Fred. Yes. Fred Wood is the dad. And Fred Wood the fourth, Woods with an S, not plural, not like there's two of them. There is two Woods. Fred Woods the fourth 
is his son. It's 24-year-old. He's missing. Dun, dun, dun. Mm, and he seems like he would buy cereal. Yes, exactly. He would buy cereal and peanut butter and just loaves of bread. No shade on anyone who does do that. No, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad snack. No. Not enough to sustain beautiful young lives in, these, in, a, in a trailer truck. Mm. So, yes. Yeah. Fred Woods the fourth. The 24 is gone. Is missing. Gonzo. Gonzo. Whilst they're executing this search warrant, they come across a document that actually says plan written on top. Literally a piece of paper that says plan. In old mate's in, house. Yeah. In Fred Wood, the yeah. dad's house. Yeah. In Rich Daddy's house. And it sets out how these three men were going to commit the kidnapping and what they would do <laughs> if something went wrong. Hi, investigators. Please find me. This will be all the evidence you need, basically. And they actually have a picture of this on the CBS article and the 48 Hours program of exactly what you can imagine. It's blue-inked, semi-neat kind of pensmanship on an old-school jotter sheet with neatly indented steps and contingencies on the side. Like, if this goes wrong, then this happens. My, I scurried my eyes to see if there was ever the food list of being like groceries, cereal, peanut butter, and bread. That wasn't on the plan. Another important piece of evidence was that this draft of a ransom note. So they actually had a plan on the draft note say that the kidnappers wanted $2.5 million. But in actuality, they were going to ask for $5 million. So, mm, so there's a yes, motive. Yes, that's the motive. But the draft note is also really strange in the plan. The writing is really funny. And from what I could make, it was like a stain note. It was really old-fashioned. I'll try and read it out. So it was like, put $2.5 million in each of the suitcases. Use old bills, full stop. Have ready at Oakland Police Station, full stop. Further instructions pending until 10.05 a.m. And then that was scribbled out. P.M. written on top. And we are Beelzebub. We are what? what? Beelzebub. They say it in the Old Testament in the Bible, and it's like the devil, Beelzebub. Sounds like a recipe. Yeah, well, it is. Does not. But for disaster. <laughs> I knew you would go there. <laughs> you, you dirty bastard. Um, but then it continues in the draft, um, and it says, like, okay, then next steps after ransom note. For example, Fred calls and delivers final message. So they actually name the names of these kidnappers. I, for one, love to plan. Love to make notes, love to organize and make very detailed notes, perhaps not when committing a crime doll. Some people keep sex toys in their sock drawers. Yeah. Some people keep master criminal police. <laughs> Who are we to judge? Not us, not I. No, not here at TTKG Podcast. So on that, at the actual site, oh, sorry, at the, at the house, the kidnappers' children's names and ages, so their names and ages were written on the Jack in the Box wrapper. And Jack in the Box is a US burger chain, at least on the West Coast. So picture a 70s style burger wrapper and a waxy, thin sheet of paper that wraps a burger with really scribbled quick writing the names of these children and their ages. Like that to me. This is all too incriminating, surely. It's, it's just terrible. So that was obviously intended to give some credibility that they have kidnapped because you'd imagine in this time you'd get people like, I've got this, bring 20 whatever big dollars or whatever the ransom amount is. <laughs> what a 20 big dollars. dollars. The smallest of 20 little dollars. That's, in this economy, <laughs> it's not even oh, that big. Spare us all the dollars. So that was on the plan to call, but guess how stupid this is? They were never able to deliver the demands via the phone calls because when they tried to call the police, the phone lines were all jammed because all the families were frantically trying to understand where their kids. They were calling all the local counties, all the police stations. So these stupid kidnappers couldn't even go through with their plan 
because they didn't even count for the fact that all their families want to know where these kids are. Shaking my head. So it gets even worse. They were like, oh, and they decided to take a nap and and try later. (laughs) When these idiots woke up and turned on the news, they saw that the children, our, our little bloody heroes, had already escaped. So... It would take at this point, so they, they, they knew they were onto it, they saw the plan, they caught the document, they knew it was Freddie Boy and two other guys. So it would take almost two weeks to catch them. So on July 23rd, Richard um, Schoenfeld, 22, so the youngest one, accompanied by his attorney and father, surrendered voluntarily. So Rich, 22, yep. yeah, surrendered. And was held in lieu of a $1 million bond. On July 29th, Woods was captured, so... Fred Woods, the fourth, fourth, who daddy's rich quarry owner, daddy, um, was captured in Vancouver, which is British Columbia. And then James Schoenfeld, so brother of the 22-year-old rich, was arrested in Menlo Park. That's kind of between San Jose and San Fran, so not too far, whereas Woods was obviously trying to escape to Vancouver, ages away from Chowchilla or Modesto or any of the places we've said in the story so far, whereas James and Richard stayed pretty close, sort of, and they, they spoke to their parents and stuff like that. And he was, whilst James, the older of the Schoenfelds, was surrendering, that was when he was arrested, so when he was trying to surrender. So all three of these men came from wealthy families who lived in San Francisco's nicest suburbs, etc. but despite their proximity to wealth, all this planning and ransom, et cetera, was said to be that so that they could pay off their own personal heavy debts. In the quotes that were later at the trial, James Schoenfield said, and this was actually at a parole hearing, we needed multiple victims to get multiple millions and we picked children because they are precious. Aww. I know. Um, and then and that's just sick. That is just disgusting. The state would be willing to pay the ransom for them and they, they don't fight back. They're vulnerable. They will mind. So I wonder why he thought that was a good idea to admit that. Well, I think a part of at a parole hearing, so that was at his parole hearing in actually 2015, is admission of guilt and you have to take ownership. Oh, oh did he get parole? Well, wait and see, Tom. Just keep going. So more details about the plan. I'll try and um, try and wrap this up. But it turns out that the three men were planning the kidnapping for over a year, tracing the bus route, converting the prison vans, you know, um, creating that under ground bunker or tomb and even building a lead get this even building a lead box to put the ransom money in just in case the police place tracking devices in the cash so they have like basically this you know court red-handed plan on a jotted ink at fred's house yet then they're like oh but we're so smart we'll make a lead box we can put the ransom money in it and you know beat all tracking devices but the sentencing so in 1977 on july 25th woods allegedly the ringleader, alleged, alleged, don't come after me, millionaire family. But um, the Schoenfields pled guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom and the prosecution dropped the 18 counts of robbery for some reason. So then on December 15, 1977, a superior court judge found the trio guilty of three counts of kidnapping with bodily harm, which usually carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. The kidnappers were all eventually sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Justice restored. So 36 years after the kidnapping, Richard Schoenfeld, so the young one, was granted parole in June 2012. I mean, fairly recent. So he was the younger one and was the earliest to be paroled. Three years later, his brother James was paroled. But Fred Woods, the son of the quarry owner, the last kidnapper in prison, was granted parole on August 17th last year in 2022 
after 17 previous denials and despite access to his family's finances. So he was fighting it all the way through. So to me, reading the articles, it seems like the Schoenfeld brothers were absolutely culpable, absolutely terrible perpetrators and involved in the planning, etc., but showed remorse and admitted a lot of guilt mm. and felt terrible. So mm. So Fred was denied parole numerous times for his minimization of the crime, his behavior in prison and his possession of contraband, like he had pornography or cell phones or, but it was discovered he was running a gold mining business and a car dealership from behind bars without telling the prison. (laughs) He also, whilst in prison, inherited a trust fund worth $100 million as he came from two wealthy families. So he's on his mother's side and his father's side. And he brought a mansion a short distance from the prison. I've got little sympathy from this in terms of he's done his prison time, but I've still got little sympathy. He bought a mansion while he's still in. I know, spare us a dollar. But this piece of shit had like a relatively cushy life in prison. And I'm kind of done talking about him, but his victims continue to suffer from the trauma that he inflicted on them. So obviously... As the time went on and they kind of news outlets would be like, oh, where are they now on the prisoners? It actually showcased his cushy life. And so the victims, as they were growing up, dealing with this trauma, would see that. And it's contrasted by one of the survivors, Jody Heffington Medrano, who was 10 at the time of the kidnapping, told the Associated Press, they basically stole our whole youth. Our childhood was completely turned upside down. So here's this guy, okay, locked away in prison, inheriting millions, still able to do a gold mining business and a small car dealership while these children are really, really struggling with the trauma. So really just quickly, remembering the tragedy and the impact of the victims. So many of the children went on to suffer from depression and substance abuse. They had panic attacks, nightmares about the kidnapping, and some actually that led to their death. But one boy actually really tragically shot a lost tourist with a BB gun when their car broke down in front of his house. Oh, I know. he would have thought that someone was out to get him. Psychiatrist Lenore Terre of told CBS News that there are a number of these kids who have gone on to prison for doing something controlling to someone else. So it's just it's just really, really sad. And now in Chowchilla, it's still very well remembered. A granite monument is dedicated to the victims. It's located adjacent to the Chowchilla Police Department to mark where the victims were reunited with their families. So a lot of the victims recall there's heaps of statements online. Um, they all remember it just from a different bus, bus seat, different part. And many of them found religion, found the end of their substance abuse and started to help other people with trauma. So it does come full circle. And actually, this is a really big thing, but Larry Park, that young, Young, um, man that I kept quoting on Young Survivor actually met with the Schofenfield brothers for dinner and gave them his forgiveness. So two of the people, which is just just incredible, just incredible. But they they were the ones showing remorse. Yeah, and yeah. Too. So and so. apparently it was really emotional. It was televised, but apparently it really really helped Larry as well recover from it. But on the last thing, and I think I'll leave it here. But it's great to see that they survive. But Larry Parks, the young one, meeting Michael Marshall again for the very first time 45 years after, with Larry fighting back tears, he goes to him, do you know I'm sitting with my hero? I can't believe what he did. I still can't believe it. And they're fighting back tears and they embrace at the end of that. That's the whistle-stop tour of the 1976 Chow Chilla bus Thanks, nice. Greg. You've never heard that one no, before? No, I love the name Chow Chilla. Well, guys, that's it for the very first episode. It was a bit shaky, a bit wobbly with a bit of nervous millennial energy perhaps, but we hope you like it. If you do, please like, 
rate, review, um, or even follow us on socials or even send us an email for feedback. So on socials, we're on Instagram at TTKG Podcast and our email is TTKGpodcast at gmail.com. And whatever you're going, if you're doing some good in the world, if you're battling something tough, um, as long as you're not kidnapping buses, all we ask of you is that you keep going. Okay, guys, speak to you soon. Bye. Goodbye. Have you got a terrible story of your own? A connection to true crime or something terrible? Write to us at ttkgpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know who you are, where you're from, and whether the story and names are safe to share on the podcast. Feel free to tell us if you wish to remain anonymous. We would love to hear from you, and we would love to share your terrible tales with our listener friends. Wait, don't go. If you like us or want us to keep going, please help us with a like, share, rate, or review of our podcast. This helps us reach more listener friends and would mean so much to our little podcast.